Welcome to Wandering Berry Center, episode six. That's I'm your host, Brian. Alex here. Hope everybody's doing well. And uh, yeah, let's uh, let's jump right into it. Mm-hmm. Um, Alex, you had the privilege to go to the Detroit Auto Show uh, yesterday. Yeah, that's correct. I was there all day. All day. Yep. Uh, my and um, my employer co- allowed me or gave me a press pass to go. So not even were you there, but you were somebody. Uh, at least I had the same type <laughs> of access that the somebodies had. Let's put it that way. Right. Um, so I know you met uh, the, I don't know his first name, but Mr. Knitzeg. Yeah, I suppose, Christian right? von Knitzeg. Christian von Knitzeg. Yeah, so he's, uh, for the, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, for those that don't know, Knitzeg is a, a boutique car company. Maybe that's the right way to say that. Yeah. Uh, they make really, really, really bespoke fast cars. Yeah, they've built are, like, you know, 200 cars or something like that in 10 plus years of existence. So. And that's not 200 models. That's literally 200 physical. Yes. Yes. Cars. Yeah. <laughs> Which is uh, absurdly low. Super low. But. It's a couple of years. I mean, just that's what it takes to build cars with that attention to detail and that, you know, masterful craftsmanship. It takes that amount of time. So that's what they do. Uh, so that's really the only thing I know for sure that you did, but I suppose I'll ask you. Um, well, if you want, you kn- um, that was going to be my topic. Was oh. the auto sh- auto shows in general, obviously, with a focus on what I just experienced. But I figure. Sure. Well, there you go. There's a. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't uh, we. Uh, show notes about the podcast itself we we purposely do not tell each other what we're going to to talk about right um so yeah let's uh so there you let's, go let's jump right into it so that was an unintentional segue yeah perfect um that's what makes this podcast so great <laughs> um yeah so like you said i went to this auto show it's the first it's one of the biggest auto shows there is and it's the first time i've been to one like this um super lucky to get to go especially as a press person, um, well, right. not as a press person, but with those those early access privileges, yeah. Um, but the way I kind of wanted to start um, was more on the history of auto shows. Okay, I was going to say, hopefully, I'd, hopefully, I didn't blow up your spot nope. by bringing up. Nope, not at Mr. all. Kine- all right, good, good, good. Um, so I guess we'll just start super basic for people who might not know. Um, if I had to break down auto shows, I would say there's industry shows is one thing where you're going to get like major car manufacturers and even some non-major, but, um, people producing and selling product. Uh, that's one thing. And then there's going to be auto shows that are more like enthusiast shows, um, where maybe you have a bunch of classic cars getting together and just people who are super into that type of thing coming out to see that or, you know, an all Corvette car show or something like, you know, more, um, enthusiast organized. Right. Obviously the show I just went to is on the other side, the industry, uh, type car show. Um, so what is this? It's basically like any, um, 
consumer product show. It's a place for these these car companies to show up and show off and sell you their newest and greatest stuff. Like a, like a convention. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that's so crazy about these shows, at least from my perspective, is that they get a lot of people. Like, you don't necessarily have to be a car enthusiast to want to go and check out what's coming because chances are you drive a car in the U.S., right? Right. It's a consumer product that... I'm in that category. Yeah, so, you know, there's people who are enthusiasts naturally, um, but then there are people who are just casual consumers, but they're looking to get the next latest and greatest car, so it kind of brings a huge variety of people together. Um, so... If you're going to one of these shows, what could you expect to see? Kind of two things I've thought about breaking it down into. One being uh, concept cars. So what these are are going to be like um, design studies. They look super futuristic. They've got crazy technology in them that either works or sometimes doesn't work. Probably more often actually doesn't actually work. Um, yeah, and by so, doesn't work, you mean like the car that they roll out onto the show floor probably doesn't like have an engine in it um, or what? It can be varying degrees. So there, that would be like the, yeah. So if you kind of walk through a, a spectrum here, the lowest degree would be like an exterior buck that it looks like the exterior of a car. Um, it has no, <laughs> excuse me, no, components or mechanical ability underneath it's just wheels aesthetically stuck on what's often a foam block carved out to make it look like a car um, so strictly just exists to show you what the outside could look like maybe it, it probably rolls forward but it doesn't steer or obviously drive or anything like that um, and the way to spot one of these um, if the car looks like it has no interior like the windows are just 100% blacked out like you know, limo tint, it probably yep. is in, in this type of car that has no inside or no internals. Could you walk up and, you know, punch it and it would be foam? Probably. Or is the outs... <laughs> okay, or, you know, funny. a foam core with fiberglass laid over it or something like that. There's different ways of doing it, but yep. totally yep. non-functioning. It's, but um, it's, a hype, it's a hype vehicle in the sense totally. it's literally only there to generate hype. Absolutely. That's what these are for. I mean, it's for... From their side, it's to explore concepts, um, and then they're also hoping to gauge public reaction, right? If all of a sudden there's tons of interest in the way this car looks, then, okay, let's try to incorporate some of that stuff into upcoming vehicles. Um, so, for instance, one of the cars that I saw at the show, um, it's, I forget the name of it, but it's an Infinity concept. It's a big sedan. Um, and what they use this car for, which apparently it, it, this one was driving, so it's a concept car, but functioning, um, was to kind of show off what the design language for the Infinity brand is going to be for the next, whatever, decade maybe. Um, so that says to me that they already have a direction, but they're still wanting to gauge public opinion so that they could say, okay, these are some of the tweaks we need to make, or this is what was a hit. This was, a, you know, what we need to work on that type of stuff. Um, 
Yeah, so that's concept cars. And then the other type of thing you're going to see there, which is depending on the show, you know, you might get more of this or more of the others, is new models that are either ready to buy basically that day or within the coming year. Um, so, you know, these are these are fully fleshed out production cars ready to go. Um, so those are kind of the two types of things you're going to see at one of these big-ass auto shows. Um, so there is diving into the history a little bit. There's five, there's like five shows, they call them the big five and, uh, <laughs> super creative, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So they take place in Frankfurt, Germany, Geneva, uh, Switzerland, Detroit, Michigan, where I just was. Paris, France, and Tokyo, Japan. So those are the big five. Okay, before we go any further, yeah, why does part of me, why does part of me like, as you're reading off the list of those names, I was like, damn, damn. And then you got to Detroit, and I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> as far as like the caliber of city. Oh boy, that's a whole nother day. That's a whole nother topic, my friend. <laughs> okay, I mean, I'm I sure I'm just alienated. Whoever, well, you know, Detroit you know, has a lot of pride, and rightfully so, they I have mean, a lot of pride. I guess from you and I, our perspective, living in the U.S., we have a certain, uh, you know, stigma towards Detroit. Right. Whereas Frankfurt, Geneva, Paris, Tokyo, those all sound so grand and and that's true and luxurious and you know unknowing to us. But I bet you, if you're there, it's maybe not quite the same but it's it's not as big a deal. Yeah, that's grass is greener on the other side. Totally. I'll give you that. Yeah. Um so these five shows they're kind of spaced out, you know, throughout the year. There's definitely coordination going on and I'll dive into that a little bit. Um but Frankfurt takes place annually in September. Uh Geneva annually in March, Detroit every year again in January. And then Paris and Tokyo are, are interesting. They both take place in the October, November time frame, but they're biennial. So Paris goes one year, Tokyo the next year, back to Paris. And, you know, bouncing back and forth between the two. Right. The definition of biennial, if you will. <laughs> I, I, in fact, I will. <laughs> um, yeah, so... We can kind of talk about each one of these a little bit. It's kind of interesting just to um, to see what each one of these is about. I was going to say, does each one have like a, a unique focus? Or yeah, a theme that's the or, thing. Yeah, is okay. it's almost like an unspoken rule, not rule, but just the way that these things kind of have fleshed out over the years. You know, you're it's expected to see certain things at this show versus the next one. You're going to see the next Camaro unveiled at Detroit, totally. rather than. Yeah. Totally. When I walked into the Detroit um, show, I mean, there's tons of automakers from everywhere, but Ford, GMC slash you know Chevy, and um, and FCA Chrysler, Dodge, Jeep, totally have the biggest presence there by far. Ford's yeah. uh, exhibit is two stories, for instance. What the <laughs> <laughs> they had. 
uh, full-size pickup trucks located upstairs on a second floor above their main area. So that was pretty wild. They're the only ones there that, that have that, so I'm not sure how they secured that spot, but pretty baller. Um, yeah, so we can start with Frankfurt. Um, so this is physically the largest one out of all five, like in terms of uh, land usage. It, and it takes up 12 buildings, or at least that's, the, that's what it was last year. So 12 buildings and 252 square meters. That's not right. Um, that, that wouldn't make sense. <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, anyway, it's big. Twelve buildings full of different stuff. You literally have to travel between buildings to see all the show. Whereas uh, where I just was is one giant building with multiple levels. So I guess you could spread that out, but still, it doesn't compare. Um, it apparently started in 1897, which, I mean, cars are barely even a thought in people's mind yet. At this and point. they were like, "Let's sell this shit." Let's let's show people. Let's show it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So going back to what you were saying before, uh, naturally you're going to get a lot of German and European stuff showing up at these. It's their home base, yeah. so that's kind of what you can expect to see. You know, you're gonna. So BMW, I imagine, yeah, is quite a force. Yeah, BMW, Audi. Audi that's where they're going to show their their new models, their concept cars. In comparison to BMW and Audi, we're in Detroit, but they were showing things that were either already shown previously or, you know, uh, refreshes of models, stuff like that. Nothing crazy, nothing super. Mercedes, on the other hand, did. But the reason is because the vehicle they were showing is super popular in the U.S., so, the G wagon. The G wagon, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm I'm not a car guy necessarily in the sense of like I, I definitely don't follow to the level you do, but I, I do know a bit by association. Mm-hmm. But that one right there, that just came out of like popular culture. I just took a wild guess that it was the G wagon. Yeah, and you're you're right. The G wagon is a <laughs> automotive anomaly. That is for it's sure. So strange looking. It's strange looking, and it's been the same for the last 40 years basically like the frame is the same the body is the same they just put more leather in it and bigger wheels <laughs> blacker windows more powered by blacker windows that's right more baller exhaust note right um yeah which it i mean started as a military vehicle on paper those are all awesome things, yeah but so. the problem is is it's super expensive and it drives like garbage so, and it's because it's so expensive, you end up with just like a bunch of rich people in LA driving them around and as right. a status symbol. And it's, it's weird. But anyway, um, let's see, going back to Frankfurt. Um, so this doesn't come as a surprise, probably won't to you either, but they did not host the show during World War One or two. <laughs> Believe it or not. (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, I'm willing to bet the first one after each war was probably a little contentious. I bet it was. Probably only German cars there. Um, So at its its height in 1989, 1.2 million visitors. Damn. So at this point, they were still 
putting passenger cars and commercial cars together in one giant conglomerated show. And once they hit 1.2 million people, they decided they needed to split it into two events. So you get a commercial and a passenger car separate shows. And now you really only focus on the passenger one. Nobody cares about the other one. Um, so Geneva in Switzerland, this one's interesting because it's kind of like a neutral zone. So Switzerland doesn't have its own, uh, car industry really like the U S does or Germany does or Japan. So it's like I said, it's a neutral zone. It's just, there's all sorts of car brands there and there's also a lot of rich people. So what ends up happening is this is where all the supercars get uh, shown. Bugattis and Lamborghinis and Ferraris and Aston Martins and all that stuff. So it's super diverse, but definitely catering to rich people. Yep. Um, well, they unfortunately, well, I shouldn't say unfortunately, uh, they have a lot of money. Totally. That's being, who you want. Being rich, therefore, <laughs> they're looking. For, they're looking for places to spend it. So you got to cater to them. I mean, I can only imagine what what that's like going to Switzerland for a car show, basically to see how you're probably going to spend a couple million dollars in the next year. Yeah, like you're not going there to look. No, definitely. And not. gawk, you're going there to be like, which one? Yeah, I'm going to go decide how this. $2 million will be spent, and then I'm going to go ski the Swiss Alps and eat fondue. It's probably what's happening. Caviar infused <laughs> fondue or something. <laughs> something super I mean, fancy. Yep. Um, so Detroit, the one I was just in, uh, or at, started in 1907. So this Good is, year. yeah, I loved it. This is, uh, like we already said, you know, home base for Ford, Chevy, um, Chrysler. So that's where their primary showings are going to, are going to happen. So for instance, um, Chevy just showed the new Silverado, which is the second best selling vehicle in the entire country. So that's a pretty big deal. Uh, Ram showed off their new, you know, um, full size pickup as well, which is another huge deal. So that's where all the all the big um, cars from the U.S. brands are, are going to be shown. Um, I like this fact that I found 1957 was the first year that we let international OEMs come in. Were we allowed to other shows before that point? Like, I get- don't know. I feel like, though, and this could be, a, you know, just a bad assumption, but we probably weren't not invited to other ones. Maybe we didn't go, but I just feel like American pride. Like, yeah, no, this is yeah, an American yeah. show. But yeah. at the same time, um, I don't know how many foreign automakes were happening around that time. Yeah. You know, a lot of them were, were later to the scene. They weren't there in like 1903 like we were. Right. Um, let's see. <laughs> so this this is a good these shows I think they've they've gotten less extreme over the years in a sense um but at their height like you know how Frankfurt in 1989 was crazy um in 1992 at Detroit 
a guy named Bob Lutz, who is a very important guy at GM, um, and he's worked at a couple different manufacturers throughout the years, but he he drove a new Jeep Cherokee at the time. He crashed it through a fake window to drive it into the event. Like, that's how they showed the car. They drove it through the windows. <laughs> that's how they decided, you know, to show it, and that was a good idea. That didn't happen this year. I'll just put the it that Jeep way. Cherokee did sell pretty well, if memory serves. <laughs> uh, yeah. Totally. Um, yeah, so, and let's see. In 2003, this was the latest figure I was able to find. Still 811,000 people going to this show. So they've been kind of... Wow, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's been said a lot that these auto shows aren't as important as they used to be, which I don't think you can deny because there's... A lot of companies using social media to show cars or private events even, um, just utilizing the internet more often. Um, So it's not really necessary to have this show where everybody comes together. But cruising through the attendance numbers, I'd say that it's not as bleak as some people say. Yeah, There's still something to be said about going. I mean, hell, I enjoyed the shit out of it when I was just there, so... And I had seen, the thing is, is all the cars are released now ahead of time. It used to be that going to the show was the first time these press people would see the car. The first time they saw that Jeep Cherokee was was when it drove through the window. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But now it's all released online. So I saw every car that I saw at the show I had seen online already ahead of time. But it doesn't compare to seeing it in the metal. Not even close. Right. Actually getting in to see it and touch it and use it and all that stuff. So I think it's definitely is that, valuable. Is that an industry term in the metal? I uh, definitely, pl- definitely am not able to coin it for myself. No, no, I know. But obviously a play on in the flesh. But yeah. that was good. I never, I never <laughs> heard that. I will be stealing that promptly. <laughs> um, all right. So the Paris show. Started in, um, let's see, 1889. Damn. Yeah, it's the oldest, it's the first ever auto show and the oldest one. Um, and they only have one car manufacturer that shows up. <laughs> Renault. Right? No, I yeah. mean. Oh, I was going to say Peugeot, actually. <laughs> well, there you go. There's more than, yeah, There's... Peugeot, Citroen. <laughs> Uh, Citroen. Oh, I forgot about Citroen. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Uh, Renault. Citroen. Citroen. Opel. I don't know. You get oh, you get some Opel. other. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. 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 It's another. It's like European show too. Um. You don't get a lot of. Pretty much everybody's there actually, except for um. American OBMs. I think we have a thing against France. I don't know. Um. Also shut down for the wars. Yeah. Also not surprising. (laughs) Um, So this shows um, kind of niche, I guess, if you you will, or unspoken rule is there's a lot of, um, it's similar to Geneva with like kind of more premium vehicles, but there's a big emphasis on efficiency. So a lot of electric vehicles are shown in Paris recently and hybrids and, Hmm. You know, the more fuel-efficient vehicles. 
are shown there. So that's kind of interesting. I'm not sure if it's just because of Paris's stance on that whole thing. I mean, they've, they've put a, it's pretty much just a spoken word at this point, but a hope to ban all internal combustion by 2030, I think, or something like that. Uh, 20, 2030 sticks in my Something head as well, like that. Yeah. Yep. Not too long from now. Which is more power to them. I mean, I, I'm a gasoline engine through and through, right? You know, there's nothing like it, but it's something we're going to have to sustainable. give up, unfortunately. It's not. It really isn't. Yeah. As sad as it is, it, start mentally preparing yourself right now for the fact that at first, all gasoline engines will be restricted to the track, and then ultimately, uh, they'll be gone. Yeah. The interesting thing is that... Um, Within the last year, the majority of OEMs have um, laid out a time frame for when all of their vehicles will either be 100% electric or hybrid. No pure... Oh, so we even... We know when it's going to happen Oh, now. pretty much, yeah. I mean, the, the gasoline engine's not going away for a while, but there will not... It will be very hard to buy a pure... Um, you know, internal combustion engine vehicle that's not hybridized in some way. I must say I'm, I'm elated by the fact that uh, it seems that the industry is going first rather than, being, rather than being forced into it by regulation. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's actually true, but, you know, there's no law that says at the moment they have to be this way by 2025 or whatever. Um, well, there's the CAFE standards, which helped at first. Oh, which, okay. for anybody who doesn't know, it's uh, basically increasing yearly regulations that a, f- oh. a car maker's fleet has to meet a certain um, uh, efficiency, basically. Okay, so they, they, were incentiv- they were incentivized at least on some level. Right. By, by, okay. Well, and what's right, interesting well, I mean, now the, is yeah. that our current government has decided to lax those rules, which almost everybody's against other than themselves um, and a few special interest groups. But um, we're already so, we as in the automotive industry, is already so invested in efficiency in this country and others that it wouldn't make sense to develop less efficient vehicles for here. So it's better to just stay the course and keep, you know, making things more efficient and better. Regardless of, of what we're, we're doing in this land plot itself. That makes perfect sense, yeah. yeah. Which is good. Even if it's yes. purely yeah, yeah, yeah. a monetary thing, it's still the best uh, outcome, I guess. Um, all right. So we're, we're on France. Yeah, I was going to go to Tokyo for the last one here. Um, don't want to spend too much time. It's the youngest of all of them. Didn't start till 1954. Um, but what was really interesting is if you remember, I said, uh, Detroit had something like 850,000 people, you know, in 2003, um, the Tokyo auto show, tiny little Island of Japan, 785,000 people on the second year existed in 1955. (laughs) I thought that was crazy. Yeah, I don't know. Obviously, don't know what their population was or anything offhand. No, I don't that know. Does, but that does seem quite the whole. Yeah, and I'm not sure why, but 
I thought that was pretty impressive. Um, so two things about this one. Naturally, a lot of the Japanese and Korean manufacturers are going to be there um, showing off their new stuff. But this show is known for getting way more concept cars shown than production cars. Like it's often more more concepts than production completely, um, you know, ratio-wise. As opposed to the other shows where at Detroit where I just was, there were three to five concept cars there in total as opposed to, I don't know, over 100 production-ready cars, whereas it's right. the opposite in Tokyo, which is pretty cool. So you get a lot of really weird and bizarre and interesting things happening there. Um, so, yeah, definitely. They all have their own uh, niche that they've carved out over the years. Um, yeah, are, so that's, while you're, that's while you're the talking history about of it. The Tokyo show, yeah. I was thinking, are there is there a Chinese auto company? I mean, oh, I'm sure tons. there is, but um, do they, you know, you, you, I don't think you can buy it like a Chinese car. Not in the U.S. In the American, okay, yeah. But actually, that, they're trying, and this company called GAC was present at the Detroit show. And they had quite a large, they were probably, I don't know, top, top seven, six, so, so, um, in terms of floor space for their exhibit, like they were big, they had a lot of models. They had one of the handful of concept cars there. Um, I didn't really care for the way they looked personally, but. That doesn't say anything. I haven't driven one or spent any time in one, so who knows? Um, right. But yeah, they're they're planning to sell here in 2019, so they'll be the first ones. But there are a bunch of Chinese car companies um, elsewhere. There are a couple, uh, or I should I, I should say one that I know of, uh, a Chinese motorcycle company attempting the same thing. That's okay. why. That's why I was thinking. Yeah. Because um, you couldn't really buy a Chinese motorcycle. Right. Um, up until very, very recently. Yeah, I don't... Or at least not without, you know, not without importing Totally. It, whatever, whatever. I don't know much about the Chinese auto industry, but I do know that a couple, I don't know, maybe 10 to 20 years ago, they got... They were known for creating, like, knockoffs and cheap ripoffs of, of more popular cars. Like, if you wanted to go buy... You know, it's the same thing as buying a fake Rolex for... 20th of the cost you could do the, you could go right. buy a fake bmw basically but right. they were terrible and unsafe so that's a bad idea hopefully they'll take a page out of kia's book yeah kia somehow yeah. got away with it <laughs> well i mean they eventually oh kia is awesome now 10 years ago i right. wouldn't have recommended a kia to anybody or a hyundai but now they're great it's actually right. exactly. kia makes a car that's on my radar for when that time comes um but yeah, so Chinese companies, at least the ones that are seriously considering selling here, obviously can't be doing that. So they're, all of their cars, at least from what I saw, seemed as, as good as any. So we'll see what happens. So at the show you just went to, yep. um, what would you say was probably the most like striking or notable thing? You know, you walk in, or not necessarily right when you walk in, but I don't know, just the most, the, something that stood out to you. I mean, when I walked in, all right, let's put it this way. 
I thought for the first 10 or so minutes that the hallway outside of where the show was taking place was the show. <laughs> I swear to God, I walked because I got there super early. My ticket said I could be there from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. So I was there from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. <laughs> so I got there and there weren't that many people there. So I'm walking around and I'm like, wow, this is cool. That's a Ferrari. That's a thing. Whatever. I saw all the stuff. And then I found out that going through those doors was where the actual show was. And when I walked in there, dude, and it's like, I mean, it's a, it's an entire arena. Arena. Yeah. So super tall ceilings, crazy lights everywhere. Cars just as far as your eye can see. It took me 20 minutes just to kind of like come down from this weird high I had going on <laughs> and actually be able, because I did have a job to do. My employer sent me there to do something, so I had to do that. Oh, boo. Um, no, it was all in good fun. Okay, um, okay. But I'm just saying it took me 20 minutes to, like, wipe the shit-eating grin off my face and actually focus for a second. Um, <laughs> so that initial impression just walking in was like, holy crap, this is crazy. So much to see. I didn't know where to start. Um but then I think one of the, I think it was just really cool to um, experience firsthand the media side of things. So being a, a huge car nerd, I'm always reading about cars and, you know, all the latest stuff on various car sites on the internet and whatever. Being there to see them creating their material was pretty fascinating just to, you know, get to see it from that other side. So I enjoyed that. So the guy from Car and Driver. Yeah, you know, all the media outlets there, taking pictures, interviewing people, pouring over the cars, looking at all the details. And um, so I did my best to fit in. <laughs> Consum- Consumer Reports magazine's out back shooting one. <laughs> Probably. <making> sure Driving it into walls and shit. I would say when they crashed that Jeep through the window in 1992, they probably instantly assessed its reliability. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, half crescent moon rating for you. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, And then I did get to witness my first, I caught like the back end of it, but still I got to experience part of it. Um, The actual unveiling of a new car. Like I'd never seen that before. Um, Jeep was showing their updated uh, Cherokee. And so they had the whole spiel going on stage and the lights and they had the thing like driving down these steps on the stage and it was just a total production. It was crazy. Never seen but anything like sand, it. Sans glass window, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, no glass window. I guess they canned that idea. They probably probably brought it up, though, I bet, when they were planning it. Hey, remember that I mean, time? And... If I, were, I was going to say, if I were in the room with that planning committee, I would have to just out of principle. I would hope somebody brought it up. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was, that was wild. Um, I think that it's worth bringing up the negative side because it wouldn't be Wandering Barry Center if we didn't. That is <laughs> um, Just the whole... And it it's, goes without saying, really, but just the whole consumerism aspect of the whole thing. Just get you there and 
give you food and beverage and lots of attention and the pretty girl standing near the car, all the promotional material, you know, just the whole spiel to get your money. And that happens everywhere, but yeah. I think it's just worth noting that, you know. The, pr- the pretty girl thing, um, <sighs> I-, I had my first experience really with that. Um going to my first MotoGP race, mm-hmm. which is the the world-level championship for motorcycle racing. And that was the first time there had ever been this, you know, objectively crazy hot woman showing herself off for money, basically. Yeah, it's weird. I wasn't expecting it. I didn't it. know how to... F- I didn't know how to... F- I didn't know... I didn't expect my... I didn't know how I would react, and I didn't expect my reaction of being like... Yeah, how did you handle it? I'm curious. I ultimately just walked away as quickly as I could. <laughs> that's kind of why. That's kind of what I did. I tried to like you just not it. address it. You see it, and you're like, "Wow, she is gorgeous." And then immediately after, you're not filled with shame or anything, but you're like, "I don't feel good about what's going on." Now, of course, she's making money, and if that's what she wants to do, and all those things, that's totally, fine. totally. But yeah, there was you know. She's the job that she's doing only exists. It's one thing for her to accept the position, right? That's being offered for money and all those things. That's fine. But sort of what really ends up feeling gross, I guess, is the fact that her, that is even there in the first place. Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That they, that the guy, you know, the board, the board members or whoever's, you know, coming up with the booth are like, well, are we need hot women, right? right? Well, of course, that's guys like people that will buy cars, right? Um, yeah, there wasn't anything like particularly bad or scandalous. Any, scandalous going on. Like, I would say the most scandalous it got was um, the girls at the Alfa Romeo booth were wearing like tight, small black dresses, like. Nothing crazy. It's not like they were. Oh, that dude. <laughs> That's nothing compared yeah, to the thing. Yeah, but still, thing. just oh boy. regardless of what they were wearing, the fact that there were no dudes standing near any of these cars showing themselves off. So right, it's right. just a weird thing that I wasn't expecting. But this is an old school event, so. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. So that's well, kind of uh, that's kind of all the the stuff I dug up about auto shows. What um. Uh, what was like, you know, not necessarily you were excited to see her or whatever, but something that was just like, meh, like specifically <laughs> the car or whatever. You're just, you're oh, like, boy. Eh. Um, uh, pretty much what comes to mind is Volkswagen products, to be honest. Some of them, okay. not all of that's them. An interesting, that's an interesting pick because... Just from what I know in my world of projects and, you know, the goings-on of business, they're, they're relatively recent troubles of all that um, uh, emission stuff would have thrown the biggest possible wrench into their two-year, five-year, ten-year plans, Oh, right? they totally restructured. So they, I'm not, that's interesting that you said that they were kind of meh because I'm sure they're still internally reeling from oh oh they're they're not done no way no. no yeah and i mean this isn't their biggest show so you know true they're 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 gonna show up in frankfurt they show they did show a brand new car that 
um, you know, for the first time was the new Jetta, which is a big deal. That's probably their one of their volume sellers. It's actually only going to be sold here now, I guess. Or at least it won't be sold in Europe. I don't know about other markets, but it used to be Europe and U.S. Um, so that's a big deal. It looked nice. Um, but, like, their crossovers and stuff, just I didn't spend much time in them. I didn't really find anything interesting. Um, another another meh point was the new Toyota Avalon. Um, just felt like a big Camry, looked like a big Camry, so nothing too fun there. But nothing bad. There's no bad cars anymore. Doesn't really exist. Yeah. Um, finally, the last thing I wanted to ask yeah. earlier, you had said something was the second best selling car in America, and I was trying to think to myself, oh. well, what's the <laughs> what's the best selling car in America? And I had a few obvious guesses, but what's the do you, what's the best do you selling car guess? in America? I mean, you should I, guess. I, I guess the Honda Civic. No. No? So, okay, the, well, think about it. The, first, the second best one is the Chevy Silverado. So what do you think the first best Oh, one? so it's got to be the F-150. Uh, hell yeah. <laughs> yep. So by a lot and year after year. <laughs> so it's pretty wild. Really? Yeah. Really? I forget what the numbers are. The best-selling car or truck in America. Yeah, like, like not, the not... best four-wheeled vehicle. Or the, I mean, sorry, the most sold four-wheeled vehicle, whether it be a car, truck, van, Whatever. That was easier than I thought. I was thinking too hard about it. I should have just gone to another truck. <laughs> and I think as far as um, it used to be Toyota Camry was the sedan leading seller, but I don't know if that's true anymore. Okay. I would believe that for sure. Yeah. It was for a long, long time, and it might still be, but the thing is, is sedans in general are tanking compared to crossovers or tall cars yeah. is I, like I was to just going to say, it's the tallness, right? That's what people love about mm-hmm. Tallness and the theoretical ability to do some Win. off-road driving, I guess. Um, oh, <laughs> I went in a totally different direction. Did you say win? I was thinking... It- yeah, I was thinking the theoretical ability to win as it relates to getting into a car crash with another vehicle. <laughs> Not when everything else is a crossover, too. Then it's just right. the well, same. Right, well, that's right. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the crossover we thing the, is we, weird. We need those sedans out there so that when I hit them, I win. Right, I need to increase my odds. <laughs> Buy more Civics. Well, that's sweet. Um, the yeah, whole thing. It, was a, it was a great experience. Yeah, unfortunately, just the one day. Yeah, just the one day for me. But um, today and tomorrow are industry preview days, um, and it gets way more crowded. The vehicles aren't powered on. I was able to, most of them were powered on, so that was really sweet. Um, And then after tomorrow, it's open to the public where it will be immensely busy. So I got in at the perfect time. Nice. Yep. Very lucky. Anything more you want to say on the topic? No, I think I think that covers what I wanted to say. Cool. All right, switching gears. Uh, nice. But not, uh, we're we're still in America. <laughs> we're still in America. Uh, we're kind of near the the older, you know, nineteen oh seven style stuff. Um, so I've been watching uh, this show. I don't watch a lot of TV, Netflix or otherwise, um, but I just was. Going down the YouTube rabbit hole one day, 
and um, which I guess is TV. Um, Nowadays. And I ended up watching a clip of Boardwalk Empire, which mm. is this show on HBO uh, about Atlantic City, New Jersey, and this specifically about this guy, Nucky Thompson, who was the treasurer of Atlantic City, which is a coastal, uh, you know, they have a boardwalk, boardwalk empire. Um, and they uh, build themselves or advertise themselves as, you know, like America's playground or whatever, mm-hmm. right? So it's a, it's a party town. And it takes place in the 1917-ish well, through Prohibition. So I'm watching this show, and ultimately what I ended up writing or collecting for my topic was sort of twofold, and I was really trying to make a cleaner tie together between the two of them, but yeah, bear with me. I'm a little bit more jumbled than you are this time around. So Prohibition in general, I just thought was... Uh, really fascinating and I'll, I'll refrain from throwing too many just facts at the wall but it it was just so fascinating to watch uh, obviously this is a TV show right and it's HBO uh, but it was made by Martin Scorsese and uh, I think Mark Wahlberg actually and not that that necessarily means one way or the other to its historical accuracy but I don't think the show deviates too far uh, from reality at least in the ways that that uh, I'm going to reference. Okay. And it's not specifically about the show. Really, I'm more concerned about Prohibition and how fascinating that was. And then leading... Well, I'll get to the... So, uh, uh, Prohibition, for those... Uh, it was, you know, we banned the sale, not necessarily the consumption, but the sale of alcohol in 1970-17, and it was fully ratified, so it basically it was in, started enforced in 1920, and it was repealed uh, in 1933. So let's call it 1920 to 1933. So 13 years of, technically speaking, not being able to go to a bar and buy any, any alcohol. Mm-hmm. So just one, one of the first thoughts I had about this was just why? Who the hell would want this? And some of the more obvious ones... Uh, it's got to be some sort be, of monetary interest in this. Well, there's that. So that's a, obviously a good start. Um, but your, where you logically go with that one was is who stands to benefit monetarily? Certainly not the booze industry. Sure. And one that may not be so obvious, certainly not the government... Because at the time, uh, most of the government's tax revenue came from the sale of alcohol. Interesting. Okay. So, where that sort of reveals itself is... Was it, uh, was it mad? <laughs> Mom's well, against yeah, drunk so there's, Right. So there's the religious and the moral. Those are some of the two more obvious and more quoted reasons. You had women's suffrage uh, was a big thing, right? They were getting the the right to vote. And it was sort of, from a political standpoint, women's suffrage and prohibition were very closely tied. They obviously weren't, uh, what's the word? You know, they're not, one's not the cause of the other or or either way around, Mm -hmm. but they were ultimately very linked. And a lot of that had to do with, um, you know, a lot of women felt that, their husbands were going and drinking the way the money, yada, yada, yada. Hmm. Interesting. Um, Probably true, right? There's the, 
Well, for yeah, certainly for some, absolutely. Um, then there's the religious uh, side of things, you know, depending on what your affiliations are, you might think that alcohol is the devil. So then the two more interesting ones that I thought were um, national mood. So there was a, a feeling, at least, of course, I wasn't there, but from what I understand, <laughs> there, there was a feeling, now the war ended up ending, but there was a feeling that it was not morally or, or respectful for all of our young men to be off dying and for you to be able to go get drunk. Oh. There was this feeling there was this feeling of by wasting money getting drunk or or uh, or whatever, you know, wasting time essentially, I'm wasting the time directly, you know, wasting time in the same moment that someone is dying for the right to even waste that time. Whoa. Right. That's super interesting. Right. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And that one, when you say that one out loud, that makes a lot You're of sense. You're almost like, oh, I kind of agree with it now. Yeah, it's crazy. You're right. That is a dick move. <laughs> it kinda of, yeah, it's kinda of, it makes you it makes you think. So that one I thought I thought that was just So what was the the you know catalyst that made this all of a sudden important to people? People have been drinking forever and it's never been necessarily a big deal. But like what sparked the chain of events that ultimately led to prohibition? From my understanding is it really was sort of the women's suffrage yeah, movement. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they had a lot of political power going on, right? They, mm-hmm. they had all this stuff and they sort of, I'm sure I'm missing a lot of detail, but you know, they, they, that, that idea with all the other things that I've mentioned, plus one big one that I haven't mentioned yet, naturally uh, sort of went together. Right, sure, that you makes the, sense. You, had the, you know, you had the mood, you had the women's suffrage movement, you had religious religions, all that. And then the other one was, this was the same time that the government introduced the income tax. So the government was saying, we are okay with giving up all of the alcohol tax because we expect that it will be replaced by the income tax. Oh. How so true the government's, was that? Well, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> not at all. Because, in ni- I mean, it was okay probably for the first nine years, but then 1929 happened, mm. and all of a sudden no one has any jobs. Right. So the reason, arguably, the main one of the main catalysts for why it was repealed was because all of a sudden the government had no money. Oh, that's super so, fucked up. Crazy fucked up. Here's this so pretty, like, you know, ethical reason and, and you know, important reason that we're getting rid of this. But here's something super shallow that can all of a sudden just say nuts to all that. Yep. <laughs> um. There were also other reasons to repeal it, uh, which uh, just go. I'll go over. Yeah, sure. um, I mean, it wasn't working, so they half-assed it t- to a certain extent. Um, but this couples with my. So this is we're starting to. I was trying to find the clear distinction, but this is bleeding into my other sort of idea, 
while watching this show, it is unbelievable how it really, uh, what I guess I should say is it, it really makes it clear just how easy it was to get away with crimes <laughs> back in the day. Really? It's so easy. And I've, I've got, do you have an example? To, to, I have stuff to flesh this out. Okay, cool. I'm ready. So one of the reasons is because in my opinion, at least I, I don't have anything necessarily hard to, to back this up with, but this time period is the initial transition between let's call frontier life versus city life. Frontier life, there's no police officer. You can't, you can't go get help. You are the help, right? <laughs> okay. So police officers were not respected. Like they just, it just was a, it was a, a relatively new thing. Mm -hmm. They were underfunded, uh, Undertrained. I got some things here. Um, I, I guess I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but uh, some of the things that didn't exist until the FBI uh, made them a thing. Now, these are specific to the FBI, so maybe local police stations instituted some of these things beforehand. Mm -hmm. But just to give you an idea of how poorly outfitted police were even to do their job... Uh, J. Edgar Hoover was the one that introduced background checks for FBI employees, hiring interviews, age requirements, fitness training and physical tests, and he was the first one to really start nationalizing and collecting on a national level crime statistics. So basically, so, there there wasn't anything to it beforehand. Pretty much. It was just it just existed barely. Pretty much. So. They set up a specific agency uh, to enforce prohibition. In 1920, there were 1,500 prohibition agents for all of America. Hmm. Okay. Which is just not enough. Yeah. <clears throat> One of the major things that was going on at the time, it still goes on now, but uh, this is one of the main catalysts for, or not catalysts, this is one of the main. Uh, reasons crime was so easy uh the jurisdiction obviously that's still a thing today you know you go from one county to the next and you're in one jurisdiction to the other but the 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 cooperation was non-existent so uh, i was i was digging through reddit and and looking for anecdotal information and whatnot mm -hmm. and um Somebody brought up the, the fact that, like, if you could murder someone in Albany, New York, Syracuse, New York, wherever, and be on a train within the hour to Detroit, you made it. Hmm. There, not only, of course, is the jurisdiction question not a question. You are out of Syracuse County. Right. Or whatever. Uh, so, but the Syracuse police may not even have the phone number of the Detroit police. <laughs> neither uh, neither institution has the resources to even bother pursuing you, even if you murdered someone. And more than likely, they're not even sure what you look like, maybe what your name is. So literally... All they have is, you, all they know is that there's a man or woman that who's dead. is dead now. Yeah. So, and it's, 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 I guess maybe sounds obvious or whatever, but it's... The 1920s, the Roaring Twenties, and the time, you know, a little bit before then, a little bit after, 
are so fascinating from this perspective, in my opinion, because policing was kind of new. I mean, there was such thing as a public enemy. Um, the guy that I was I picked out is this guy named Babyface Nelson. <laughs> this guy was a public enemy. That what does that even? What does up, that mean? Like, well, we don't know anymore because they don't exist. Hmm. This is a guy who like is a known like his face and everything, a known criminal who is out and about. Like you could you could see him at a restaurant. <laughs> and hey, there's the public enemy number one. You but might. But then, say. At, you know, and but then at the same time, like he ended up you know, dying not directly in the gunfight, but his final act, if you will, was to get in a gunfight with the police. Like that shit doesn't happen anymore from a a long time frame. Like people knew who Babyface Nelson was for fifteen years and then one day they opened the paper it'd be like it'd be like opening the paper and finding out that uh Ar- I I'm picking R. Kelly, you know, got into a gunfight with the police and now he's dead or whatever. You'd be like, oh shit. <laughs> Not that R. Kelly is a public enemy. I was going to say, but like nobody's that. really after R. Kelly necessarily. Right, right. Why R. Kelly? So, I just, literally the first person. I don't know what that says about me. I but. mean, did you listen to him <laughs> on the way home or anything? <laughs> I was watching Dave Chappelle's skits last uh, night. Okay, all right. And maybe that maybe that had something all to do right. with it. Um, so, uh, back to the, the ease of the crime thing. Um being a police officer, so not only are you underfunded, all these things, but ultimately the police officers themselves and specifically the prohibition agents made no money. Right. So bribing them is as easy as flashing a couple <laughs> dimes, basically. They're not getting paid elsewhere or, you know, by their own institution. So no, they're happily accept. So yeah, just it's, it was crazy how prevalent crime was. It almost almost makes um, like the stories of, and the infamacy of Al Capone, like almost less impressive. You're like, Oh, anybody really could have done that. Well, it's funny to bring up Al Capone because he is in the show and this is his period. And he, so one of the things I wrote down is prohibition and then also coupled with the time period and the ease of crime, relatively speaking, you could argue that prohibition created the what you know Al Capone to be right. and the the mafia. Because you go from one day, the government regulating this thing and collecting taxes and every, booze was – dude. Another thing that you notice from the show, but then I confirmed it. Booze is everywhere. What else I mean, are you going to do? What else? <laughs> Dude, it was a medicine. It was, I mean, they're drinking all the time <laughs> in the show. Uh, whiskey's everywhere. At like 10 a.m., they're drinking whiskey. Best way to cure so your hangover. Is, so, booze is, <laughs> so booze is everywhere, and then all of a sudden it's not. So from a criminal perspective... Prohibition was the greatest thing that ever happened. Yeah. Because I mean, now, because it's not like people, it's not like all of a sudden most, you know, even though there was this mood of like, you know, being respectful or whatever, ultimately people are people and are going to succumb to their vices or whatever. So now you have this crazy way of making money. And uh, I didn't, I didn't end up, I did find statistics and whatnot, but I didn't, I didn't want to go to that level in the podcast, but 
basically it's statistically and from the data perspective it is there's proof that prohibition drove crime up at a way faster rate than it otherwise was on track for. That's not too surprising. Um, no, it's not. I mean, this is just a number. And um, you think we would, like, uh, oh, sorry, you go. No, 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 go ahead. Go. I say, think you would, uh, look back on that for lessons on the current war on drugs. Dude, you same, read my mind like a book. Same thing, right? Exactly. Um, quite, quite literally the same exact thing. <laughs> yeah. So some other things, uh, no DNA. It's just not a thing. What do you mean? No DNA. So, uh, sorry, harken back to the, the ease of getting away with a crime. Oh, oh, okay. There's no DNA. Right. There's no, there's no tests. There's no ballistic test. There's no poison test. There's none of that CSI stuff. <laughs> none of that. It's, there's a dead guy here. That's the pool of the killer's blood. We should clean it up. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there'll be a message in the dirty rags when we're done. <laughs> right, right. Um, another thing that I, I was reading about mostly um, was the attitude towards especially deaf. So if you bring back what I said about this sort of a being like a transition period, 1880. Mm-hmm. Let's pretend, you know, we had been in 1920, 1880 horses, you know, World War One was still fought with horses. Right. That's you know, crazy. they still called cars horseless carriages at this time. Mm -hmm. uh, so horse thieves were killed. You stole somebody's horse, you died because you are stealing their livelihood, basically. Yeah. You know, stealing a horse their was, you're stealing their freedom. <laughs> so a horse thief, you know, those people were killed. So that mentality would have been, you know, that was still fresh, you know, in 1920. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think in general, people's attitude towards this kind of stuff was just less shocked, if you will, I guess. You know, it's not like people were just willy-nilly killing each other, but <laughs> a, a self-defense death or a bar fight ending in a death or whatever was less of an, a thing. Right, I right. No, it makes sense. Death is a little more touchy these days. Yeah, yeah. And, a little I mean, more that's uh, a, that's taboo. A, yeah. Um, so, let's see. One of the other, uh, just a sort of, this is a bit of a, a story, I suppose, or, or whatever, but uh, like crime and how just common, more commonplace or more in your face it was. So like you could be working at a factory, doesn't matter what, that has a union. Mm -hmm. And the term labor racketeering, like it would be like going to work at the Ford factory and all of a sudden, day, one day, finding out that the mob has taken over the union, not necessarily Ford, but they've taken over the, the workers' union, and they're starting to take their guys and put them in the union to flesh out the union numbers and to start skimming from the union dues and this and that. <laughs> so my point, is, my point is, is that your everyday job was under threat of being taken over by a criminal enterprise 
you know, I don't go to work at my small software company and not my company, the company I work <laughs> at. Uh, <laughs> I don't go in there with a, a fear of finding out that the the mafia has taken over my software company and I am now working for them. But that was a real thing in 1920. You could walk, you could show up one day and find out that, you know, your union has been taken over. I feel like the modern day parallel would be like, um, us worrying that our information is stolen off the internet, which is happening more and more. It seems sure that kind of feels like a similar, Maybe your company's not taken over and there's no physical mafia presence, but you worry you about yeah, you worry about your private information Excellent. being ripped away. I like that. That's very true. And in some ways, that's so that's ultimately some you know, some of the counterpoint to my argument is that, you know, people are people and, and criminals exist and it's impossible to know you know has crime lessened or has it right. just changed or whatever? Hey, and people's motives are the same. It's the tools at hand to, you know, conduct the crime. Yeah. So I guess mostly it's it's just sort of changed uh, manifestations. Mm-hmm. So then finally, so yeah, you've got prohibition, which is just fascinating from so many levels of why it existed. Um, how people dealt with it completely disregarded by the way, for the most part. I mean, the show does is specific to Atlantic city, but my research showed me that, you know, basically combined with the, the fact that it was like a light switch one day, it was legal one day. It wasn't. Um, and combined with the lack of enforcement, uh, you know, it, finding a drink was not that difficult. Yeah. It was slightly more difficult, okay. but it wasn't that difficult. Well, I was going to ask actually what that looked like when the flip, the switch was flipped back the other way and it was all of a sudden legal again. Party central. Is that true? That's Yes. Okay. Yeah, people got wasted. I didn't know if there'd be like some you know apprehension towards it just because it's been so long without it that people are okay with that now and it'd be a slow gradual reintroduction or doesn't sound like it. There's a famous picture of a uh, relatively famous of um, uh, it's sort of kind of not an overhead, but like a somebody probably got up on the ladder to take the shot, but it's a, it's some bar in New York city, I think. And uh, it's the night that it's legal again, 1933, whatever day that was. Mm-hmm. Um, and they look quite happy <laughs> and then there's a lot of alcohol um you know going on um you know what's great about that to me is it takes more than a day to make alcohol <laughs> you were you knew exactly where i wanted to go uh so i'm gonna destroy this because i'm gonna get both people wrong but some booze company sent roosevelt a truck full of whiskey the day that it was repealed. That's awesome. And obviously, as you pointed out, uh, they didn't make that whiskey that morning. No. (laughs) That's not how it works. That's hilarious. So, yeah, it's it's such a crazy thing. And it's it's so absurd to me. Um, I I wasn't necessarily going to bring this up because I didn't know how much it really... But, you know, they put this law into effect and 13 years later, they rip it back out for 
probably a lot of monetary reasons. It also just wasn't working. Mm -hmm. But like the two other things that I wrote down, it's not a, necessarily a fair comparison, but I just found it. Women's suffrage, if you take 1776 as the start point, which is the start of, you know, our great country, mm -hmm. 1776 to 1920, that's how long it took women the right to, you know, to get the right to vote. And then civil rights was 1776 to 1964. Mm -hmm. Booze was 1920 to 1933. <laughs> I don't know what that says, but it says something. There's something in there. I don't, I don't know. Booze bringing people together, man. <laughs> I guess. Just, just like the car shows, all walks of life. Everybody likes to drink. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people, whether, you know, no matter where you come from. So in an attempt to not only uh, just reiterate things that other people have thought before me, I thought to try and, you know, add something to the conversation. So I, I ended up thinking there's the obvious observations of, you know, this really did give rise to organized crime. I mean, the amount of money that, I, again, I, I won't bring all the, I did find figures and whatnot. It's all speculation. But I mean, the amount of money these guys were making was just crazy because obviously you had an artificial demand or, or uh, an artificially inflated demand in the sense that i'm sorry you had an artificially reduced supply so right. you know they were able to, they were able to charge even crazy. more money oh yeah than ever and then it was tax-free too <laughs> that's one of the crazy part, parts about this is the government really i don't know how much of their decision making was based on the the switching from one revenue the booze revenue to the the I just don't understand why they willingly gave that up I suppose um, because they made so much money from it it that that kind of goes against human nature I don't that one's kind of strange to me but yeah so the thing the thing that I wanted to add mm -hmm. to the conversation I support I suppose the question we can uh, vamp on till the end I I wondered if after prohibition and leading into the the craziness that was the mob and gang wars, you know, from this prohibition onwards, I wondered if part of that was due to um, a general reduction in the attitude towards law. So I know I, hmm. I started off by saying people didn't have a lot of respect for policemen and whatnot, yeah. but I think ultimately there was a good respect for the average law. You know, like people were trying to be decent and all those things. But if every day you're breaking the law by having a drink, just from what I believe in human nature, that's going to steadily reduce your mental uh, shielding. I guess. Yeah, you're, you're thinking like, all right, I'm breaking this one law. Like, am I? What's the next law? Right. Baby steps. <laughs> you know? The only thing. Yes, it... mm, the but only yeah, that's, that's, counter that's to that. Thought. Yeah, no, and I can see that happening with some people. But I also am thinking um, just about me personally. If I'm going to, if I'm recognizing that I'm breaking a rule or something, I feel more compelled to hold up to the other rules almost as a subconscious way to make up for the fact that I just broke that other one. True. Just me personally. Yeah. No, no idea no, that, if that's, that's, if that's 
most people. Well, that makes a lot of sense, and I think it speaks to you know human nature being quite varied. Where I, on my side, or not my side necessarily, but the current side that I'm uh, putting out there, specifically the gangsters and whatnot, during Prohibition, they got used to uh, breaking the law on a larger totally. scale. Totally, that's a way of life. So they were not going to give that up in 1933. Mm, okay. Because I imagine for those types of people, it's probably pretty fucking fun. <laughs> probably. Uh you know, so you have things like the Valentine's Day Massacre, which was Al Capone's guys. I mean, they had so much money, they're buying Tommy guns from the government. <laughs> you know, so you have the Valentine's Day Massacre, which at the time uh, was, I mean, it's still crazy by today's standards. I mean, you know, they lined like, I don't know how many it was, nine or so. They lined these guys up in like a, a warehouse and just you know unloaded on them with automatic weapons and it was just straight up gang war and yeah, that type of activity ha- i think that was uh oh boy i didn't get the date on that but it was before it was during prohibition okay um so you know that level of activity of law breaking you know isn't once once you do the valentine's day massacre you know humans naturally you keep going right so, well, I mean, look at how but, numb we are to all the bullshit that happens these days. There's right, so much of it that right. you're just like, meh, yeah, okay. Yep, yep. I didn't die today, so. That's good. Sweet. Oh, oh, this, I, I got to bring up. Well, actually, I don't know if you have anything. So, yeah, I just, I was thinking, trying to add to the conversation of, you know, rather than just reiterating stuff was. No, I think that's me, a, a good seemed, point. Yeah, to me it seemed like both on the on the extreme end of things, the gangsters becoming comfortable with killing people, with stealing cars, whatever. Mm-hmm. But then also your average person is like, well, I'm, yesterday I was a, an American citizen who was completely law-abiding, and tonight, because of this glass of whiskey, I'm a criminal. Right. Why don't I just, you know, I don't know, cheat on my taxes or whatever. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Um not that you've ever done this in your own life per se, but people who maybe enjoy marijuana from time to time in a place where it's not legal, are they more inclined to break the law in other areas of their life? Um, Uh, Generally speaking. Obviously there's an extreme case. Yeah. uh, Oh boy. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I would have to say no. And that's based mostly on the stereotypical view of someone who smokes weed in that they're not aggressive. Does that make Mm -hmm, sense? mm -hmm. Yeah, it could be. That could be a unique example where that type of behavior leads to, you know, others in that type of way. Right. But, um,. The, but the just the straight act of committing a crime of consumption, mm-hmm. right? right? It's a crime of consumption. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, yes, that is a good observation. I would say no. The straight act of consuming marijuana probably does not lead your average person to, to then say to themselves, well, I just smoked this joint. Why don't I rob this guy? <laughs> <laughs> Not because I smoked the joint, but because smoking the joint was illegal. 
Yeah, I'm feeling very. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling I'm very rebellious <laughs> right now. I'm going to steal my neighbor's car. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Let me come down first, though. <laughs> yeah, but your point though of the the larger the whole thing, the prohibition was an exercise in futility, and it's amazing that it was never going to work. It was it was not going to work. It even if they had five thousand prohibition agents. You know, they, they kind of half-assed it anyway, but it was never going to work, right? And, I mean, I just it, – it blows me away I that, like, Nixon was still – I wasn't going to – I had a – I was going to go on this big rant about Nixon, but um, – <laughs> Oh, that would have been fun. Uh, yeah, well, because there's there's theories out there that the war on drugs was, like, a racist thing. Oh, I've never heard that. Yeah. Oh yeah. So the quickly the theory there is that uh, basically the, for whichever reason, the Nixon administration or Illuminati, whatever, pick your pick your governing body, mm-hmm. um, was for whatever reason wanted to undermine certain races or communities, and purposely introduce the most addictive drugs possible to those areas mm, okay to i have systematically... heard that yeah 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 but and i'm not saying whether or not that was or was not the case but nixon himself appears to have been a very anti-drug person personally mm-hmm. so you could argue he was blind to the lessons of prohibition for a lot of reasons um and and i didn't i didn't like the whole uh, conspiracy theory of, of I'm no I'm not necessarily a Republican nor do I think Nixon was particularly a I, I, he did good and bad things I suppose but I don't know I, once I started going down that rabbit hole of, of uh, that I was like yeah that's you weren't too convinced little... no uh, but the point is though is that the war on drugs as we currently know it I mean is even worse than prohibition you know, the Volstead Act is what it was called at the time. Um, and it's crazy that, you know, we, we didn't learn our lesson at all. History repeated itself in an even worse possible way. Uh, yeah, it is really disappointing. So the final thing before we uh, start signing off here, mm-hmm. I just thought this, uh, I almost forgot it. This is going back to prohibition. Um, one of the ways they circumvented the, uh, the law and it just, it's, so, uh, liquor specifically, not beer, I don't think at least, liquor specifically was considered medicinal in certain capacities. Okay. And so you could still, if you were a doctor during Prohibition, you could still uh, prescribe alcohol. So that's why they were still making it. So right. does that oh, mean right. that every doctor was just hammered all the time? Not only was every doctor hammered, but the amount of Walgreens went from 20 stores in 1920 to after a decade of prohibition, they had 525. Whoa. That's... So Walgreens is a pharmacy where you would go get your prescriptions and liquor. That's amazing. So, so Walgreens... were they just writing BS prescriptions? Like, you have too much stability. You need alcohol. <laughs> yeah. So you'd go to your doctor and say, boy, my eyes hurt. And he'd go, you know what's good for that? Whiskey. Straight Kentucky bourbon. 
<laughs> pour it right on your eyeballs. Just pour it right in there. Oh, the burning? So That's then you'd just go the to, disinfecting aspect so of you'd it. Pay, you'd pay the doctor $3 for your prescription, and then you'd go pay Walgreens $1.50 for your ration of whiskey, and you were on your way. Oh, boy. Um, that does also obviously not sound all, fun. All the fame. No, no. But yeah, I thought that was funny because most of us know what a Walgreens is. You don't normally think of Walgreens in any sort of interesting way. No, suppose, never. Yeah. Literally not so once. Wal- you could argue that Walgreens only exists today because of prohibition. They went again, they went from 20 stores 10 years later, 525. That's incredible. It's incredible. Good for them. And this, yeah, and it was all legal. You didn't find any evidence or or oh, turn up that, that yeah that Walgreens was you know illegally no, selling the, the illegal part. I mean, I'm, I, they could have been selling extra stuff out the back or whatever. But the illegal part in that context would have been the doctor prescribing liquor for right not nothing that was actually ailing the person. Right, that, sure. that would be the once the prescription was in the person's hands. Walgreens, as far as I understand, you know they're they're just selling to a a, a valid buyer. Yep. Yeah. So Walgreens, that's business. the thing too. Walgreens was totally legal. Yep. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So good find. I thought that one was pretty funny. Oh, fingerprints were brand new in 1970 as well. Not, uh, 1917. Fingerprints that were a brand feels new, late. Brand new thing. <laughs> yeah. All right, that's all I had. All right, I think I think that's about what it then for here? for tonight. Hour 20. Yeah, that's a little bit longer than normal. It's good. Definitely. All right, well everybody, thank you for listening yep. to Thank you very much. Barry Center. You're helping us and make this what it is. Make it a thing. Yeah. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, we're not sure what it is yet, but uh, it's getting there. It takes time. Yeah, we'll get there. One brick at a time. Um, depending on when this gets heard, uh, if you want to contact us about anything, a topic uh, that you'd like to hear about, or anything really, um, the Gmail address Wandering Berry Center, no space or anything at gmail dot com. Uh, but eventually, we'll have our own proper website and and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all depends on when this is heard. So you can hit us up on uh, Instagram too. Wandering underscore Barry Center is the username. Nice. We're on Twitter as well. Uh, Got the whole suite. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Instagram and Twitter. No Facebook, because why? <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> all right, everybody. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. See you soon.